millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport, a retrospective series on the most extraordinary riders and races in cycling history. We are once again recording this episode socially isolated away from the Eurosport studios, so please forgive us if the sound quality isn't quite up to the same high standards that you're used to. Felix Lowe, however, continues to rewrite his own high standards for this series of Recycle, narrated as ever by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. Last time out, we were in the saddle with Frank Vandenbroeke for what would turn out to be the pinnacle of the Belgian's troubled career. A performance of power and panache that delivered his 1999 Liège-Baston-Liège victory. In this episode, we take on our first Grand Tour of the season and the 1967 Giro d'Italia. That year's race saw the first of six ascents of Mount Etna in Giro history. Won by Italy's Franco Bitosi, a rider known as Crazy Heart. Bitosi would later morph into a fast finisher and amass more than 170 wins, all achieved despite a cardiac arrhythmia that, today, would have ended his career before it even got started. Few riders become king of the mountains in only their second Giro d'Italia. Fewer go on to win the climbers classification three times on the bounce. And fewer still cap this with the sprinter's jersey in their second Tour de France. Franco Bitosi achieved all of that, and then some. In 17 years as a pro, the Tuscan won a total of 171 races, including 21 stages of the Giro, two Giro di Lombardia crowns and three national championships, as well as GC wins in Torreno Adratico, the Volta Catalunya and the Tour de Suisse, not to mention his coming agonisingly close to the 1972 World Championship title. And he achieved all this despite having to stop regularly on the side of the road to regulate his heartbeat. The fifth stage of the 2020 Giro d'Italia was scheduled to revisit the Sicilian volcano where Potosi, with trademark opportunism, took his eighth Giro stage on what was the race's inaugural foray up Mount Etna. 53 years after Potosi kicked clear to win stage seven of the 1967 Giro, The first high-altitude finish of the 2020 edition was meant to return to the black lava slopes of Etna via a new, unprecedented route to the finish. It still might, and that is as good a reason as any to look back at the career of the first victor on Europe's highest active volcano. In 1967, 
an Italian Elvis Presley tribute act known as Little Tony, sat atop the Italian charts for nine consecutive weeks with his single Core Matto. The song, which translates as Crazy Heart, became a hit off the back of the popular San Remo Festival, the inspiration behind the Eurovision Song Contest. But for cycling fans that year, there was only one Core Matto. He might have finished third in his own showdown in San Remo that year, but Franco Pitosi and his crazy heart was the in-form Italian rider of the moment, notching a series of springtime wins and podium places in the build-up to the Giro. The reason behind Pitosi's nickname was quite simple. His cardiac arrhythmia. In his biography of Eddie Merckx, journalist Daniel Freeb explains that Pitosi, the son of a Tuscan tractor driver, lived with his parents in a farmhouse in the village of Camaioni on the banks of the River Arno, 15 kilometres upstream from Florence and a short boat crossing from the nearest road. Turning professional aged 21 in 1961, it took Batosi a while to make ripples in the sport, his first years more notable for a particular quirk than their success in the saddle. As Freeb says in Eddie Merckx, The Cannibal, Crazy Heart's first two seasons in the professional peloton had been hellish, yielding zero victories and innumerable variations on the same tragicomic scene. A flash of heels, a blur of jet black hair, Batosi clear of the field, and then, moments later, stationary at the side of the road, hunched over his handlebars. John Foote, the author of the definitive biography of the Giro and Italian cycling, Pedalar Pedalar, elaborates on Batosi's enforced roadside breaks during these sudden and destabilising attacks. In the 1960s, Franco Batosi had been diagnosed with heart rate problems. His doctor advised him to stop altogether when his heart was beating too strongly. Not surprisingly, this often happened during races. What was extraordinary was that, despite this obvious handicap, Batosi had a long and successful career in a world in which he was competing against heavyweights such as Merckx and Gimondi. Foot adds that many people at the time suggested that Batosi's problems were largely psychological. In other words, he had what might be described today as panic attacks. This might have explained some of his more absurd losses, says Foote, such as his notorious and inexplicable meltdown in the 1972 World Championships. More on that later. But for Batosi, these attacks were all too real, even if his doctors at the time were left completely flummoxed by his condition. Now approaching his 80th birthday, Batosi tried to explain his crazy heart in an interview with the website Bike Race Info. I felt an extra systole coming and then an attack of tachycardia would begin. My heart rate would climb to 220 beats per minute. Every time I took a test, there was never any evidence of heart problems. It happened only during racing. I took a stress test and I didn't show any symptoms of tachycardia, so the doctors said it was not that serious. But today, I would get an attack of tachycardia were I to take such a test. Given, for example, that Miguel Indurain famously had a resting heart rate of 28 beats per minute, it's clear why Batosi's 220 beats would require rapid roadside attention. Speaking in 2018, shortly after the death of Belgian cyclist Mikel Goulartz, who suffered a cardiac arrest during Paris-Roubaix and died later that day in hospital, Batosi admitted that the primitive tests during his time as a pro probably allowed him to keep riding despite the dangers. In those years, we were subjected only to an electrocardiogram, and with that, we couldn't see anything. Today, it's no longer like that. With periodic exams and 24-hour tests, you can see everything, 
and a cyclist with a problem similar to mine would not be allowed to compete at all. Nicola Portal, the former Team Sky and Ineos director sportif, missed the entire 2009 season because of cardiac arrhythmia. In a tragedy that shook the sport this spring, Portal died suddenly from a heart attack aged 40 at his home in Andorra, a stark reminder of the potential severity of the condition. Although Bitosi's condition was a severe handicap, it did not stop him from not only being competitive, but winning a great deal during his long career. Freeb retells one incident in the 1966 Coppa Agostini, when Bitosi had ridden rings around the likes of Merckx and Felice Giamondi, but was forced by his palpitations to stop no fewer than 10 times, and yet he nearly beat them both. And while the nickname that stuck was Crazy Heart, Bitosi was also known as Felena, or Moth, because of the smooth, light way he would win his races, his supple riding style giving the impression that he was floating. When he finally broke his duck as a professional, the floodgates opened. Consigning those barren years firmly to the past, Bitosi won stage three of the 1964 Giro, then added three more wins on his way to finishing 10th on GC and snaring the first of his three successive King of the Mountains titles. Going into the 50th edition of the Corsa Rossa in 1967, Bitosi, despite finishing in the top 10 in the previous three editions, was not named among the favourites. This was a continual source of disagreement between the 27-year-old and his Philotex director sportif, Barto Iozzi, who felt his leader should focus on the general classification. Bitosi, however, was a free spirit who wanted to live for the day and target stage wins. The favourites for the Maglia Rossa that year included defending champion Gianni Motta, the 1965 winner Vittorio Adorni, and the 1964 Tour de France winner Giamondi. The non-Italian threat came from the supreme yet fading force of the French superstar Jacques Anquetil, a winner in all three Grand Tours, including his record five Tour de France victories. There was also a new kid on the block, a spunky Belgian by the name Eddie Merckx. Merckx had beaten Motta, Bitosi and Gimondi to land his second Milano San Remo title two months earlier and was chomping at the bit as he made his Grand Tour debut in the Giro. Having added Ghent Wevelgem and the Flesh Wallon to his Palmares that spring, Merckx, in the mythical black and white checked kit of Peugeot, was the dark horse for a maiden Giro that would see him notch two wins en route to Milan. Bitosi, already a three-time king of the mountains, was a big name in households all over Italy. He was most notable for his winning break of 155 kilometres in the evocative Cuneo to Pinerolo stage in 1964 and for his performance in 1966 when he rode over numerous summits in the Dolomites in pole position before being caught by Gimondi with just a few kilometres remaining. It was another day his crazy heart apparently skipped a beat. The shortest Giro in seven years, the opening week of the race headed from Lombardy in the north to Naples in the south after which came a transfer to Sicily. The Italian all-rounder Michele Dancelli was in pink after the opening six stages, with the Spaniard Jose Perez Francis just 13 seconds in arrears. Hand on heart, the Giro's first ever ascent of Mount Etna was far from memorable. In fact, the following day, newspaper Lunita ran the subheader The Giro Takes It Easy and protests on the stage to Etna. The reason for this go-slow was the proliferation of long transfers that had exhausted the riders. Proof, if ever it were needed, that some things never change. 
Writing an opinion piece in the newspaper alongside the stage report, Hino Mazzolo highlighted the agony of two consecutive transfers, from Chiancino to Rome after stage four, and then Naples to Palermo ahead of stage seven, which had left journalists with red eyes, gaunt faces, and long beards. Mazzolo joked that the press corps now resembled the local Sicilian priest, Father Mariani, which could have explained why Sergio Zavoli, the host of Rai's daily Giro television coverage, invited him to appear at the start of the stage. The journalist opened his light-hearted piece by admittedly over-egging the tiramisu a touch with these words. It was right that the stage finish was on Etna. This terrible, tormented, painful landscape, blackened by lava, sprinkled with the yellow of the gorse that stubbornly manages to flourish even here, where nothing is born, it constitutes the natural environment for this grim ghost concept that the Giro caravan has become. It was hardly surprising, Marzullo said, that the first potential GC showdown between the likes of Merckx and Onkatil was resolved in a tourist walk. The actual report to the 218km stage in Lunita was less flowery and more succinct. Nothing happened going uphill and nothing going downhill, it read, adding that there was 130 kilometers without any notable story and an hourly average speed of 26 kilometers per hour that testified the rider's desire to protect their own skin. Race director Vincenzo Torriani was tearing his hair out, shuttling between the peloton's head and tail, trying to cajole the riders as they headed from the sea to the hills and then on towards Etna, over the fairy tale landscape and in a blustery wind. Italian rider Silvano Schiavon and the Spaniard Aurelio Gonzalez, respective Vitadello and Cascascol teammates of the Maglia Rossa Dancelli and his deputy Perez Francis, held a slender lead going through the town of Nicolosi to the south of Etna at the foot of the final climb. Bitosi and Italio Zilioli, Gimondi's lieutenant from Salvarini, countered from the chasing group of favourites to neutralise the move. With around seven kilometres remaining, the lead group was down to 15 riders as the air became cold and pungent from the volcano. Bitosi, Gonzalez, Schiavon and the Italian Lino Carletto broke clear to form a leading quartet. The champions don't respond and let it go, read the report in the atmospheric present tense. In a way, they go on strike. And so, the four escapees gain a small advantage. A sufficient advantage to contest the stage win. And, at 1,881 metres, it's Potosi who gets the better of Gonzalez with a burst of pace. Schiavon took third and Carletto fourth before the main favourites were led over the line 26 seconds later by Motta, Merckx and Gimondi. Onkatil came home a further 20 seconds back, but the big loser of the day was his compatriot Lucien Aymar, winner of the 1966 Tour de France, who conceded considerably more time than his big teammate. Dancelli retained the Maglia Rossa, while, in trademark fashion, Bitosi, up to fifth place at one minute and five seconds, enjoyed his moment of glory while downplaying his form, claiming he was not in good health. The report in Lunita concluded with this frank summary. In essence, an insignificant, disappointing day. So, what happened next? The transfer travails would continue on the 1967 Giro. After journalists travelled from Palermo to Catania ahead of the seventh stage, Mazzullo continued his grumbling before the prospect of what was to come. A beautiful landscape, of course, 
but the caravan is going to sleep at two o'clock with the prospect of moving from Catania to Messina and tomorrow morning at dawn from Messina to Reggio Calabria. Once back on the mainland, the Spaniard Perez Francis took over the race lead for eight days, during which time Merckx won two stages. After the 45-kilometre time trial, Oncatil, who was known as Monsieur Crono because of his time-trialling ability, took over the Maglia Rossa for one day before conceding it to Schiavon in the Dolomites. Oncatil was back in pink after Adorni won stage 20 in Trento, only to lose the race lead on the penultimate day to Giamondi, who survived the final day's split stage to win the first of his three Giro crowns. The Italian's winning margin over compatriot Franco Balmamion was a comfortable 3 minutes and 36 seconds in Milan. I've been trying to pick the bones out of the 1967 race for 15 years, says Italian cycling specialist Herbie Sykes. I've spoken to Balmamion at length on any number of occasions. Motta, Adorni, Zilioli and many others. Among the living, the only ones I haven't spoken to are Imar and Perez Francis. But that's probably just as well, because the more I find out, the less I understand it. It's an absolute mystery. Having been two days away from a third Giro win, Oncatil had to settle for third place in Milan, trailing Gimondi by the same deficit as Balmamion. Last place on the podium, astonishingly, tied the Frenchman's worst position in all of his Grand Tours, besides the three he didn't complete. It would be his last major stage race before his retirement. That autumn, Oncatil beat Roger Rivière's hour record, which had stood for 11 years by 150 metres. But, because he refused to submit to a drugs test, the ride was never certified by the UCI. As for Potosi, he secured a couple of top tens later in the race, but was unable to match his Etna heroics, eventually coming 15th place in the general classification, the best part of 35 minutes in arrears. His three-year reign as the Giro's best climber also came to an end, with Gonzalez, who took the final uphill finish at Madonna del Gisalo, taking his crown. Bitosi's season continued strongly, however, with the Tuscan all-rounder beating the Giro champion Gimondi to glory in the Giro di Lombardia in the last significant race of the year. Looking at Bitosi's achievements through the prism of the cannibal, Freed writes in his biography of Merckx, for Bitosi, 1967 started so well that there was talk of potential campionissimo status. But after his victory on Etna, the Dolomites and Alps cut him down to size, just as they had Merckx in his debut Grand Tour. After demonstrating his versatility by winning in the Apennines at Blockhouse, and then in a sprint ahead of compatriot Willy Plankart, 22-year-old Merckx felt the pinch in the final week, dropping to ninth place overall. After the race, Bruno Raschi, the godfather of Italian sports journalism, reviewed the main protagonists in La Gazzetta. On Merckx, his summary was deliciously wide of the mark. He has shown his limitations in the mountains. The young Belgian will never win a major stage race. Freed reports how this comment made Batosi choke on his breakfast cafe in Cornetti. I couldn't believe it when I read that, what Rashi said about him not winning the tour. I mean, based on what I'd seen, it was obvious what the kid could do. The kid returned the next year to win the Giro, his first of five triumphs, matching his record in the Tour de France. Merckx added a single Vuelta title along the way, as well as multiple monuments, three world titles and another 200-odd career wins. As Freeb quips, Crazy Heart Bitosi had not missed a beat.
While Batosi's own wins were not as prestigious, they were almost as plentiful. Having made his name as a climber, Batosi morphed into a fast finisher as well as a breakaway specialist renowned for his late flyers, winning the points jersey in the Giro for successive years in 1969 and 1970 after becoming the first Italian to don the red, as it was that year, sprinter's jersey in Paris in 1968. Starting in 1968, I changed my tactic and started specialising in flying away in the final kilometre, Batosi told Bike Race Info. This was necessary when I was in a group with many sprinters and I needed to forestall them, taking off suddenly. This worked for some time, but then, in the final years of my career, I didn't have the legs to do it anymore. More significant than many of Potosi's wins was perhaps his greatest disappointment, which would merit an entire episode of Recycle in itself. But for now, let's focus on the nitty-gritty of the pot of silver at the end of Potosi's broken rainbow dreams. Five years after his victory on Etna, Potosi headed to the World Championships in Gap with high hopes after just missing out on the podium in 1968 to Michele Dancelli. That year, Vittorio Adorni won in Imola by a stonking 10-minute margin. Attacking from the leading group of seven riders, including that man Dancelli and the reigning champion Merckx, Bitosi entered the final kilometres with the race seemingly in the bag. He had it all but won. The chasers seemed to have given up. John Foote takes up the story. Bitosi got out of the saddle to sprint. Then, something incredible happened. He suddenly appeared to be cycling underwater. His speed dropped, he veered wildly to his left and looked back more than once. Those behind were gaining on him. Just before the finish line, one of them passed him. An incredulous Marino Basso raised his hands in the air as he realised he had won, his eyes wide open in total surprise. It was one of the most spectacular turnarounds in the history of the sport. The distraught Bitosi later blamed his collapse on a variety of things, including an untimely gear change, the wind and the shady tactics of his teammate Basso, who he felt did not do enough to protect him in the finale. Basso was the Mario Cipollini of his time, renowned for his electric jump that earned him numerous wins and the catchy nickname Mr. 10,000 Volts. Rather than let his fading compatriot take the win, or worse, lose out to a non-Italian, Basso kicked clear of Merckx, the Dutchman Joop Zotemelk and Francis Cyril Guimar on the final uphill rise to the line, passing Bitosi with just six or seven metres to go. Bitosi said the win would have been his masterpiece, up there with Gioconda, what the Italians call Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Instead, he had to call it his unfinished Gioconda. Basso always claimed that he beat Potosi fair and square, that he had ridden a cunning race of attrition against Merckx before doing what he had to do to beat the Belgian, even if it meant denying his countrymen at the death. Merckx, who narrowly missed out on the podium, was not so generous in his assessment. Basso was a wheel sucker for almost the entire race, first in the peloton and then in the leading group, he said. I don't want to be enemies and say that he is not worthy of the title. I only say that I envy him because he is a lucky man. 
The new wearer of the rainbow jersey retorted via the age-old, tried-and-tested route of claiming Merckx was simply bitter because he had been courting Merckx's younger sister, Micheline. Basso hugged Batosi warmly at the finish, grabbing his forlorn countryman by the arm on the podium. He was in full crisis, and he didn't say a word to me, Basso later admitted. He hasn't talked to me for a long time, perhaps because that funny guy Merckx told him that in closing the gap, I had pulled like crazy too. For his part, Batosi claimed he never bore a grudge against Basso and that the two men remained friends throughout their careers, which dovetailed for a final year together in 1978 on the Gis Gelati team. But Batosi admitted he had what he described as a nervous breakdown after the finish, that the loss was the greatest disappointment of my life. In a 2018 interview, Batosi said, I suffered for a week afterwards. If you say gap, everyone adds, Bitosi, 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 Basso. I am the most remembered joke of cycling. Can I still watch that sprint today? No, my heart probably wouldn't take it. Whether Bitosi's notorious crazy heart played any part in that loss is debatable. Bruno Rashi would write that he had been afraid to win in gap. But this was the same journalist who had poo-pooed Merckx's potential back in 1967. The Tuscan himself admitted it had been his psychological frailty rather than anything physical that had paralysed him with the finish line so close in what became known as the infinite sprint. In any case, it's hard to label a rider of Batosi's calibre as a choker or a loser despite the events that afternoon. It was also a fallacy that Batosi couldn't win big races. He notched three Italian championships, two Giro di Lombardia crowns, four Tour de France stages and 21 Giro scalps. He also completed a run of 16 successive Giri, of which he finished 12, coming in the top 10 on no less than five occasions. There is, however, no doubt that Franco Bitosi will always be remembered not for his victory on Mount Etna, but for his heart problems and this one spectacular defeat. The Tuscan would keep on riding until he was 38 and then retire to Empoli near Pisa, where he cultivated a flourishing olive grove and became an accomplished player of bocce. That's lawn bowls to you and me. Twenty-two years after Bitosi took the Giro's inaugural win on the Sicilian volcano, Portugal's Acaccio da Silva won a top Etna in stage two of the 1989 race. But just as in 1967, the big race favourites kept their powder dry, with eventual winner Laurent Fignon content to take sixth place in the same time as De Silva. In 2011, Alberto Contador won on Etna to propel himself into the Maglia Rossa, which he would hold for the next 12 stages all the way to the finish. The Spaniard's belated sanction for his clenbuterol violation from the previous year's Tour de France, however, saw his name struck from the record books and the stage 9 win gifted instead to the Colombian Jose Ruano. Slovenia's Jan Polanc solo to glory in stage 4 of the 2017 Giro, when the race used the more severe Western approach to the Refugio Sapienza from Padara. A year later, on the traditional Southern approach, fans witnessed a memorable Mitchelton Scott 1-2 as Colombian Esteban Chavez took the stage spoils ahead of teammate Simon Yates. In coming second, the Briton took the Maglia Rossa that he would keep until his unforgettable collapse on stage 19. That was the day compatriot Chris Froome wrote himself into the record books 
with his famous long-distance attack on the Col della Finestra, a move masterminded by his late director sportif, Nico Portal. 53 years after Potosi's opportunistic win on Etna, the 103rd edition of the Giro was due to return to the volcano for a sixth and unprecedented ascent in the race's history. This time, via the northern side of the crater, via Lingua Glossa, the 18.2-kilometre climb comes in at an average of 6.8%, but hits double figures consistently in the final three kilometres among the black ashen slopes of the active volcano. The coronavirus crisis put paid to the Giro running as usual in May. Fans will have to wait a little longer to discover who will be the next winner on Etna, where a little piece of Franco Potosi's crazy heart will always belong. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport. Written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Produced by Pete Burton. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze. You can find me at Graham Wilgos. And you can find Podcast Pete sometimes where you'd least expect him. Plus, you can follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK. Or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you've enjoyed this or any other episode, please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Stay safe, look after each other and join us for our next episode when we look back at Marco Pantani's swashbuckling victory at Madonna di Campiglio in the 1999 Giro d'Italia. It should have been Il Parata's crowning moment, but instead he was kicked out of the race while wearing the Maglia Rossa, ending the defence of his title and sending his career and life into freefall. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.